All right, we'll go ahead and get started again. And Sister Mary Jane on the right to break. Sister Mary Jane came up and shooed me out for for misrepresenting her. But no, I the point the point that the point that Sister Mary Jane was making, and it's, it's a very good point. We, yesterday we looked up the promises uh, as they were relayed to to David, and that David had to be present. David had to be present to see this establishment of this kingdom. Now there are some people that say that. There's different ideas. The people that think the kingdom has already been established in some form, there's different ideas of when that was. Some think it was when Christ was at the beginning of His ministry. Some think it was at His crucifixion. Some think that it was on the day of Pentecost. And even at the day of Pentecost, Peter, uh, Peter makes reference to the fact that David was still dead and buried. So if there is some kind of kingdom being established, it definitely was without David because David's still in the grave. It was still, still in the grave at that, was at the grave in that time and is still in the grave today. Uh, another, also another uh, a valid, valid uh, passage that, that we, should, we should look up. Let's look to Hebrews 11. And there, there really is just so much. There's so much. The burden of proof is not on us to prove that, that the kingdom is now in existence. The burden of proof, when we use that term, the burden of proof, the, the, tough, the tough way to prove that rests on the people that think that the kingdom now is in existence. That's, that's, where, the, that's where the difficulty lays. It's very difficult for them to have to prove that. Uh, and we, we have plenty of evidence to, to, to show uh, the truth of the matter. But Hebrews chapter 11, last two verses... Uh, this being the faith chapter, talking about those faithful who have, who have died in faith, not yet having received the promises, uh, Abraham and uh, Noah and Sarah and all, the, all the, the long list of faithful that are mentioned. Uh, verse 39, And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. Okay, this, this is the Apostle Paul speaking here. I believe very strongly this is the Apostle Paul speaking in Hebrews. And... He's saying these people have not yet received the promises. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. The point here being made uh, regarding this is that he's you know, talking about the believers of that time, and it applies very much to us, is that we have not been yet made perfect. That, that, that Including those faithful that have died, we're all going to be brought into the kingdom and given the, the, the uh, promise of everlasting life at the same time. Uh, if we're already in some kind of spiritual kingdom now, when we're baptized, then we're, we're, we're a part of this. We've, we've received the promise already. Yet these people are still in the grave and they have not received anything. So there's, there's, there's a, a major disconnect uh, as far as that is concerned. Now let's get back to uh, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. Actually, this whole chapter and the whole book itself is a, is a very important uh, lesson uh, on, on many different layers. But we're going to just focus in on, on these two these two verses, uh, verses twelve and thirteen. Uh, and as it mentioned here, it says in verse thirteen, "Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son." 
into the kingdom of His dear Son. So it makes it sound like that when we're baptized, that we're automatically, what the word used here, that we're translated into the kingdom. That's the impression that one might get if that's, if that's the only verse that you're looking at. Or if you don't understand the larger, larger context and some of the, the, the words that should be used here. Um, we already, uh, we have to be, now this is not really an explanation of this passage, but I, I, I want to throw this out and then, then we'll move on from it. We do have to be careful not to put too much emphasis on tenses sometimes. When I say tense, either future or past tense or present tense, when we're reading scriptural passages, sometimes we have to be very careful and understand larger context because God speaks many times as though things already exist when they have not yet been fulfilled. He'll speak of something like it's already something that is, that is transpiring or something that is, that is current, but really it's something that's in the future. And, and God speaks with the surety, with the confidence... Uh, of course, it is God directing all these things and speaks these things as though, as though they were uh, already in motion. Let's go to Isaiah 9.6. We read this yesterday, but this would be one of many examples of this. No, better yet. Not Isaiah 9.6. I tell you, let's go back to, I think, of a better example. Uh, it's going to be found in Exodus chapter 3. I have to be careful here, or I can go off on another another expositional tangent here, and I'm, I don't want to do that. Um, starting in the fourteenth verse, uh, whose whose turn is? Do we remember where we left off in the readings? Boy, you're quick to point off. Wow. Okay, you, can you, you want to do that? Can you read that for us? Verses fourteen and fifteen, nice and loud. Okay, this is, this is Yahweh talking to Moses at the burning bush. And what he states here in declaring his name, declaring what we call his memorial name, not I am that I am or I will be who I will be, is actually the correct rendering of that. But what he says here is he says, I am the Lord God or the Yahweh Elohim of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And when the time that God spoke to Moses at the burning bush, and when Yahweh spoke to Moses at the burning bush, were, were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob alive? No, they were dead. They were long dead. Okay, so they were not alive at this time. They were dead, but God is speaking as if they were alive. Okay, well, they're not alive. They're not off in heaven somewhere, but we know that they have a surety of resurrection and a place in the, in the, in the kingdom. A major, a major place, a major cornerstone place in the kingdom. I shouldn't say cornerstone, but a major place in the kingdom to come. Go to Romans chapter 4, 17. Now, I'm spending, a lot, spending some time and emphasis on this one. Really, it doesn't really go towards helping explain here uh, in Colossians because we really don't need this explanation here because it's... Uh, 
there are some other things that, that come into play, but it is important important principle to understand. Uh, Romans chapter four verse seventeen, and this is kind of this is a reference to what we just read in Exodus chapter three uh, uh, regarding regarding these, this issue. Okay. Okay, now this is, I, I shouldn't say this is a reference, this is actually a reference to the promises made. Christ makes references to the fact, in, in proving the resurrection, he talks about the fact that it, of, of God being the God of, of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the point that I want to point out here in Romans chapter 4, 17, is that God calls those things which be not as though they were. So he, he, the surety of things that are yet future to happen on the earth, God will speak of them in, uh, often and many times in a present tense form, as if they already are, are fulfilled, a fulfilled prophecy, when in fact they're not. Now, so that I don't confuse you any further, we're going we're to move on with that, and we're going to talk about exactly what, this, what we're talking about here in Colossians chapter 1. Now, we know that the entrance, entrance into the kingdom is not granted until Christ's return. We've already looked up plenty of passages to prove that point. This idea of being translated into the kingdom of His dear Son. Now, if we just wanted to take it at face value what it says here in our King James Version, we can use Romans 4.17 as our argument. Say, well, look, we've got plenty of passages in there, in the Scriptures, that show very clearly that the kingdom is not established yet. So when we read this here, you know, if, if you just take it, if, if somebody says no, I, I, if somebody arguing with you says no, I want to take this at face value, then you've got Romans four seventeen. You say, well, look at God. God will speak of things as if, as this, as if they are when they have not yet, in fact, taken place yet. If that's as far as somebody that you're talking with wants to go with that, but there's if they, if they want to reason with you a little bit more. And in, as far as your own understanding is concerned, there's much more to this than than meets the eye. Now. The diaglot rendering of this is very, very important as well. And you don't even have to have a diaglot on hand to be able to correctly, to, to, to correctly interpret or translate what we're talking about here. But the diaglot says this. It says, giving thanks, this is actually backs up to verse 12, giving thanks at the same time to, the, to that Father who called and qualified, that's important, qualified us for the portion of the saints' inheritance in the light, who delivered us from the dominion of darkness and, and here is key, this is key, and changed us for the kingdom of His dear, or the kingdom of His Son, of His love. Okay? So instead of that word translated, the original actually is changed. And the word for, or what we see into here, where it says translated us into, that whole phrase should be changed us for the kingdom. Not into the kingdom, but for the kingdom. Now, the word into, again, is from that Greek word eis, E-I-S, that we talked about earlier. That preposition. The same word is translated for... In verse 16, look at verse 16. So our translators are playing some tricks on us here. Uh, where it says, uh, all things were created by Him and for Him. 
That word for there is also that same Greek word ice, E-I-S. Now the question is, and I can't answer this question, I can't read the minds of the people that translated this, but here in verse 16 they translate the rate of for, which actually is the correct translation, but yet back in verse 13 they use the word into. Okay? Now the only explanation I can think of is, is the, the people that translated what we have our, our King James Version and many other versions to follow, they were people that believed in going to heaven when you die. Okay? Or they were people that believed in some kind of, of present existence or spiritual kingdom. Uh, all kinds of different beliefs of, of, of different individuals. So they had you know, their own little slants or ideas of what they, what they thought these things should say to prove their point. I, I can't prove that necessarily, but, but obviously they, they were not consistent in how they translated this. Now, the word into is again from the Greek word ice, and we, we read that, that it's, it's translated for in verse 16. So we are translated or we are changed for the kingdom. That word translated is from the Greek word, I, I don't pronounce it very well, metamorpho, metamorpho. And when you think of that word metamorpho or metamorpho, does any English word that we have come to mind? What? Metamorphosis. Okay, you learn that. You know, you learn that in, in science. What 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 goes through metamorphosis? What caterpillars, butterflies? Yeah, that's that, that's that's how I remember that always being being associated with. What a caterpillar does? What it metamorphoses? Or I I can't do the the proper English, but it goes through a process of metamorphosis to turn into a to turn into a butterfly. So. When a caterpillar turns into a butterfly, it, it does what? It changes into a butterfly. Okay, so there's a change there. There's something that happens. Now, what we're talking about here is not a, not a physical change here at, the, at this time. That's not what we're talking about. But there's some kind of change that takes place for the kingdom. Now, the question is, is how are we changed? How are we changed? This represents a change out of Adam into Christ. We have that displayed up here on the chart very clearly. Okay? Once you cross through the waters of baptism of being in Christ, there is a change that takes place. Okay? Not a physical change, okay? but we, we change from being uh, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel to heirs of those promises that have been made. This is the thing that takes place at baptism. We come out of Adam being in Christ. Uh, there's, there's to be a moral change as well as you'll hear, hear the terminology. I'm not, not speaking on the atonement this week, but, but a legal change. Okay, there is a change that takes place in us upon baptism. And that, that is helped, is, is confirmed by what we read in verse 12. And it's not in our version too well, but the fact that it says in our version, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, that we are to be made meat of the partakers of the inheritance. And what we read in the Diaglot, it says that we are qualified, that we are made qualified, that, that we are qualified as for the portion of the saints' inheritance in the light. So when we are baptized, we become qualified to be inheritors of that future promise of the kingdom. Okay, that's what this verse is talking about is the change that takes place from Adam into Christ. That change that takes place uh, upon our baptism that qualifies us uh, 
to be a part of the kingdom. You can't be a part of the kingdom unless you go through this change that is, that is provided through us, for us through the shed blood of Christ uh, and which our baptism represents. Okay, This is the change that's being talked about. And again, I'll just read what I, I, the notes I have here. This represents the change out of Adam into Christ. The only way we can be prepared or qualified to receive the promises is by such a change. Or a trans, as, as this is spoken of here as a translation. Let's go to 1 Thessalonians 2.12. So this is not has nothing to do with being being popped into some kind of spiritual kingdom upon baptism. It is this this uh, change in status before God. This what we we refer to as a constitutional change of being under the constitution of sin or under Adam, and then falling under the constitution of righteousness or being in Christ. First Thess- Thessalonians two twelve. Whose whose turn is that? Are we back. I think Jacob's turn in it. Oh, he's passing it off. Okay. Okay, so we'll flip back over here on this side. Okay, so we've been when, when you are are baptized, you're called called unto unto or towards this kingdom and glory. Okay, so this this is the thing that that takes place upon baptism. Now. Moving on, there's a lot more that could be said about, about this, this chapter in general, but we'll, we'll leave it at that point as far as that passage is concerned. This, this is not so much an issue within the brotherhood itself, or it shouldn't be, at least not yet, but this is something that is, is, is definitely an issue among the church world, especially the, 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 the uh, con- what we say conservative or the, uh, what's the fundamentalist, the, fun- the fundamentalist parts of, of Christianity, the Baptist. Uh, in other religions that are related to that. And it's found in Second Peter chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And it's regarding the question, is will the earth be burned up before a kingdom can be established on it? Will the earth be burned up before a kingdom can be established on it. Now, we know the answer to that. I mean, that's, that's pretty clear for us. But we do have to be able to explain this. Uh, and Peter here talks in very explicit language of both the heavens and the earth burning up and how a lot of the, the church world uh, interprets this. Of course, they view talk about the rapture, that they're going to be raptured away into, into heaven. And then all the, all the rest of us, us poor saps left behind, you'll hear that phrase, left behind, are going to be burned up with the earth. Uh, and it'll be destroyed while they, they get to go off to some kind of sky kingdom. Now, not all churches fall in line with that. There are some churches that believe that there will be uh, some kind of kingdom set up on the earth, though it doesn't seem to uh, harmonize with other views that they hold. But we do need to be able to explain this. Uh, Verses seven through thirteen. Let's go ahead and read that. We might split that up between the two, between a couple of you. Okay, seven through thirteen.
Okay. Okay, so there's potentially some, some confusing language in here uh, regarding this, this destruction of, 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 of the heavens and the earth and the establishment of some kind of new heavens and new earth. Uh, first of all, what does the Bible state very clearly regarding the destiny of the earth? Ecclesiastes 1.4, does anybody know what that is? Can anybody recite that? I see some people kind of lipping it, but they're, not, they're, they're afraid. Ecclesiastes 1.4. Let's look it up. Ecclesiastes 1.4. Go ahead and read that nice and loud. The earth abideth forever. Does that, if we take what Peter says literally regarding the destruction of the earth, we've got a problem here with what's stated in Ecclesiastes where it says that the earth abideth forever. Now, the scriptures do not contradict themselves. Now, man will contradict himself and man will contradict himself regarding interpretation. But the scriptures do not, do not conflict one with another. Go to Isaiah 45.18. And hopefully you all are marking these down because you, you will need them. At some point. Isaiah forty five eighteen. Okay, so God created it, He made it, He established it, He created it not in vain, He formed it to be inhabited. Informed it to be used. Okay? Let's go to Psalm 104, verses 1 through 5. And young people, I actually have a, I have a handout so that you're not having to sit there scribbling notes. So taking notes is going to help you remember a lot better. If, if you want the handout that I prepared, it's got the bottom. It says... Arkansas Bible School, June 2009, so I'm going to have to rip those covers off. But I do, I do have a handout that I did prepare for you so that you got everything in a very easy-to-use reference system. Uh, but it is important for you to write it down as well. Uh, Psalms 104, verses 1 through 5. Okay, so God has made this this wonderful creation, and are we supposed to take the the apostate Christianity's view that this this has just been here for a short time and God's going to be done with it, 
and it's going to destroy it. Now, looking back at at Second Peter, when we look at this, there's a very key thing involved with this. If 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 somebody wants to argue the point regarding the fact that that okay, I, I believe the earth is going to be destroyed and I'm going to be taken off in a rapture somewhere, there's a problem, a blaring problem, just in the in the language itself that creates a serious. Uh, inconsistency. If you want to take the idea that the earth is going to be burned up, there's a problem. Does anybody know what that blaring inconsistency is? If we're to take this literally, what problem are we going to run into right away? Anybody know? Yes. The heavens. What does it say about the heavens? Here. Yeah, it says here that the heavens are going to burn up too. Well, the heavens we know, if we take this literally speaking, we think of heavens as in regard to God's abode, His place his place of habitation. So are we to believe that both the earth and the heavens are going to burn up? Because if somebody thinks that they're going to be taken off in a rapture, well, they're, they're, going, they're going up to, to some place that's going to be burned up as well. Okay, that's, that's a serious problem that we run into here, that they run into. We don't have the problem. Um, for those who try to prove that the earth is to be burned up, it has to be noticed that the heavens are destroyed as well. If taken literally, are we to believe that God's dwelling place is to be destroyed? Now, we also need to notice here that the word, for us to properly understand this, we have to, to, to view here is that heaven is not referred to singularly, it's referred to plurally. It's not heaven, it's heavens. Okay, It's a plural term. So clearly we're talking about something other than, than, than something that's literal. We're talking something a little bit more of a spiritual nature. Now, use of symbolic language is found throughout the Scriptures. Okay, and this is something that trips up those of the world as well. They have a hard time discerning between spiritual language and literal language. And again, that, that falls into very heavily to what we see as context. Context makes a huge difference in how we understand certain things to be literal and certain things to be of a spiritual nature. Now, the heavens is in reference to something. We're not talking about God's habitation here. We're talking about something else. The heavens in the scriptures themselves can be used to represent what? What can it be used to represent? And we can have adult participation too. Governments. Governments, leaders. Okay. Now, the heavens are governments and leaders. Let's go to Luke chapter 21, verse 26. This is very important in how we, how we understand prophecy as well. Luke 21, verse 26. Actually, start in verse 25 and verse 26. Chapter 21, verses 25 and 26. Okay, and there's actually quite a bit of symbolic language here, language used here. The moon and the stars, uh, the sea and waves roaring. 
okay? We're not talking about literal seas uh, 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 foaming up and, and, and roaring here. And then, of course, we make the connection or correlation in verse 26. The powers of heaven, powers, powers or authority of heaven shall be shaken. We're not talking about God's habitation. There's nothing to shake God's habitation. That's an impossibility. Okay, it's, it's solid. There's, there's nothing moving uh, uh, regarding God's habitation and His authority and His power. But the power of heaven shall be shaken. This is in reference to governments, world governments, men, the governments of men, the kingdom of men. The powers of heaven shall be shaken. or They'll be, they'll be knocked off their feet. They'll be confused. Uh, let's look at chap- uh, chapter 10 of Luke, verse 15. Back up. And I know there's other places that can be looked at and analyzed, but for the sake of, of time, we've got some, some quick references here. This is Christ speaking of a, um, of a couple of cities uh, regarding that He was not very pleased with and that there would be coming judgment upon these places. Uh, but reading in verse 15. Okay, so thou Capernaum, which are exalted to heaven, shall be thrust down to hell. Now we know this 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 city did, wasn't wasn't literally exalted into the heavens, but it has has reference to their their status, their authority, their power is on a higher level or a higher plane. Uh, when we talk about our leaders, we talk about looking up to our leaders. Okay, we look to a higher a higher level or a higher position, and so that's that's why we have heavens often used in the Scriptures, again, but based on context, used in regard to government leaders. Uh, let's go to Isaiah 14.12. This is another, this is a huge one. Isaiah 14.12. Speaking of the king of Babylon, which is used by, we're not going to talk about it today, but it's used by uh, popular Christianity to prove the existence of Satan or a devil that fell from, from heaven who is an angel of God who fell from heaven, was kicked out, and formed his own dominion on earth, which is a, a preposterous, preposterous uh, um, thought. Isaiah fourteen twelve. Okay, now if I can get there, I'm trying to think and do two two things at the same time, which I don't do well. Isaiah fourteen twelve. That that's that's speaking of the king of Babylon. And we know that it's the king of Babylon because we're told back in verse 4 of Isaiah 14 that thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of Babylon. And he's spoken of as falling from heaven. Well, we know the king of Babylon didn't really exist in heaven. What it's speaking of is the overthrow of the Babylonian kingdom and the fall of its king. And so that's, that's again, he fell from heaven or fell from authority or fell from power. Uh, Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 4, verses 23 through 27. We want to make sure that you can, you can prove this, this point very, very well to those who want to see a different view of this. This, was, this is in regard to Israel's uh, position or their condition uh, at one time due to their wickedness and, and, and the fall that they... Experience Jeremiah four twenty three and twenty seven. Okay, 
Okay, this, this is speaking of Israel. It's, it's a speaking of time of, of, their, of their downfall. And it says, that, you know, the earth is without form and void. And it's not speaking of the little... It's, it's a reference to uh, Genesis 1.1, but it's not... It's, not, it's drawing upon that to, to prove another point. The earth is without form and void. In the heavens, they had no light. Uh, it's speaking of the condition of Israel. Their, 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 their government authority or power was diminished. Uh, their people were in confusion due to their wickedness. But it's, again, symbolic language used to, to declare uh, or to make a point. And then Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. This is not specifically in reference to heavens, but it's, it's, it is of a similar pattern in regards to uh, symbolic language being used for something very, uh, very lofty. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. This is speaking of those uh, who are granted eternal life in the coming kingdom. Daniel chapter 12, verse 3. Okay. Well, we know that we know that those who are granted immortality in the coming kingdom are not literally going to be stars, but that is their that is their the, the, the symbolic language used regarding their status, their lofty status that they will be promoted to. Now we do it we do it now in the current even in the world itself. What do we refer to the, to, to uh, uh, actors and actresses? What do we refer to them as? As stars. Okay. The people in Hollywood they get that silly little star that they put. Put in the concrete there in in uh, uh, in Hollywood. Okay, they're stars. Well, even if you watch the nightly news, sometimes they'll, if 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 there's some kind of a shakeup in a government, sometimes you'll actually hear them use the term heavens. There's been a shakeup in the heavens. It's pay attention to those things because even those of the world will use this language to make reference to those kind of issues. Anything that's lofty or any any kind of power struggle that takes place or a change in power. They'll use some of the very same language that we're here talking about in the Scriptures. And they understand what they mean by that. So, that's important to draw upon. Now, go to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 1. And I can't remember why I stuck this in here, so I'm going to kind of... I'll look at this and be reminded. Okay. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 1. Okay, so give ear, O ye heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. Now, this is, this is God speaking, this is Yahweh speaking. Are the earth and the heavens themselves literally going to hear Him? Are they going to hear Him? No, they're not going to hear it. Okay, so he's speaking of something else. Okay, he's speaking, he's speaking of governments, of power, of the people of the earth. Okay, now let's go to Genesis chapter 37, verses 5 through 10. This is the dream that Joseph had. Again, symbolic language in regard to a prophecy.
I know I'm kind of beleaguering the point here, but you, you want to make sure that you've got these, these passages ready to go. Uh, and hopefully, hopefully those that you talk to can at least, at least see the point. Genesis 37, 5 through 10. Okay, did, did Joseph's brethren and his father, did they understand the dream that he, that he told them about? Did they understand what he was saying? Actually, they did. They, they did understand. They understood that, that Joseph was having these dreams that he would one, one, at one time or one day have preeminence over them or have power over them. And they understood what he was saying. That's where the anger comes from. But again, we have the language here in the second dream. He talks about the, the moon and eleven stars made a band's tomb, the sun, sun included. They made obeisance to him. So again, symbolic language of these lofty images, these images of the heavens that are used to prove a point, to make to to to, to even if these these high uh, constellations are 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 doing obeisance to to Joseph, then therefore he's even higher than that. So uh, it was not something that they appreciated very much, obviously. And one final one. Let's go to Isaiah chapter one verse uh, chapter one verse one and two. And very similar to what we read back in uh, Deuteronomy 32. Isaiah 1, verse 1. Okay, again, here's this, here's this language being used. Hear, hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. Okay, again... Not talking to the literal heavens, not talking to the actual earth itself, but the inhabitants of the earth, the rulership of the earth, to say, stop, listen to what we have to say. Okay, a little bit more to that than, than what I'm saying here in, in Isaiah 1 and 2, but that, that gets the point across. Now, back to Second Peter chapter 3. Okay, establishing the fact that we're, when we're talking about heavens, we're talking about governmental powers, and we're talking about the earth, we're talking about the, the system, the cosmos. Uh, even though that's not the word that's being used here uh, in regarding earth, we're talking about the system of things that, 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 that exist, that will, uh, that will be dealt with, and the, and the nations of the earth, the peoples of the earth, that will, that will have to be dealt with uh, at the establishment of this, this coming kingdom. Now... What element will be used to cleanse the earth of the wicked? And before, before you answer that question, what, what, what element 
What natural element was used to destroy the wicked during the days of Noah? The flood or water, right? Okay. What is going to be used when Christ returns to this earth to cleanse the earth of the wicked? What is going to be used? Fire. I saw you, I saw you lip it. She was afraid to say it out loud, but she said fire. Fire is going to be used to destroy the wicked. Okay? Fire is a, is, is a, a all-consuming element, right? Okay? Whereas the flood drowns people, fire, there's nothing left. And we've got a big example of it down there, uh, on the, on the, in the field at the bottom. Okay? The idea of consuming it, of, of incinerating it. An absolute destruction of those things. Of course, flood does a pretty good job of it as well, but God has made that promise that the earth would not in the future be destroyed with flood. But it will be fire. Ezekiel 38.22. And this is just one phase of that future destruction. This is the destruction of the Gogian host that will come against Israel. But, again, we have very clearly what will be used to destroy that host. Ezekiel 38, verse 22. Okay. Among other things, fire and brimstone. A complete destruction, a complete burning up that will be involved with this, this, this great enemy of Israel. And by extension, God Himself. Revelation chapter 14, verses 9 and 10. And there are lots and lots and lots of verses that talk about this destruction of fire. And this will be the destruction of those who followed after Babylon the Great or the Roman harlot system, uh, what we call the Catholic system, those who have followed after its lies uh, and its, its course, its general course of this, this earth, those who have followed after it, just like Babylon itself or Rome itself, the Roman system included, will be destroyed with fire, completely burned up, incinerated, and destroyed. So when we, we consider what we're talking about back in Second Peter, Chapter 3, we know that the destruction to come upon this earth that will include the heavens or the governments of this earth, as well as the, the wicked people of this earth that follow after those systems, whether it be governments uh, or religious systems, that they are, it is in fact going to be destroyed. And a new heavens and a new earth or a new government and a new order of things upon this earth will be established in its place which we've, we've, we've been talking about uh, in general terms uh, starting yesterday. So that gives, you a, that gives you a general idea. and There's a lot more here in Second Peter 3 that be, can be considered, uh, but that gives you a, a general thing to come back with those who try to use this as a future destruction of the earth uh, by fire. Well, there definitely will be fire used, but not in a consummation or, or destruction of the, of the earth itself. Uh, but of the system and order of things as they now stand that will be destroyed, replaced by the glorious kingdom to come. Now, we're going to take a quick break. Our next, our next set, what I, what I call lesson number two, 
we're going to get into the issue of eternal life and immortality and some of the foundation principles that are involved with that. So we switch gears in a, in a big way.